You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. You'd think it would have been a huge deal, an awesome sight in the Chinese port of Canton in 1784 as a ship appeared with a flag with a different combination of stars and stripes and colors that any Chinese had seen before. You'd think this would be a huge moment, but most likely it was not. The Empress of China from New England, here to trade at the small area the empire allowed for foreigners to trade with a select cartel, to trade for silk, to trade for porcelain, for Chinese tea that would be so valued in the homes of wealthy New Englanders. 60 feet long, 25 feet wide, not a huge ship. In today's terms, a few rail cars worth of storage, not earth-shattering commerce, but yet a signal of what might be. The Chinese here had seen the Portuguese. They had seen the British, the Spanish, the Dutch. Thus, just one year after American independence and British evacuation, the first American trade vessel was here, and hopes were high on the American side. See, Britain had blocked many ports to American trade now. The British Caribbean colonies were off-limits to American commerce. Trade with Britain itself was under severe restrictions. Americans had to find new market. And perhaps China would be one of them. American ginseng could find a market here where it was so popular. But the trip was treacherous. A ship most likely needed to make its way across the Atlantic and around the tip of Africa and going to China that way. India would have made a nice stop but it was off-limits to Americans due to British trade restrictions. So you find Americans trying to trade with places like the Baltic states, you know, finding markets for New England cod, trading with Turkey, finding and even using their ships to get items from Turkey and bringing them to China. China, they think, could be at least part of the future here, and trade continues. Many ships will follow the Empress of China. The Chinese would take American silver gold. They had less use for the stuff than Americans made up until the later half of the 19th century. And there was no formal relationship between the nations, but trading was brisk. By 1839, a trader with a dozen years' experience in China trade would hold an exhibition in Philadelphia, and 100,000 people would come to see everything of this Museum of Chinese Culture. And it went both ways. Missionaries had entered China, providing assistance, education, medical help, and converting them. One of them is going to write a history of the United States in Chinese, which is received by the emperor. Yet we should not think that all of this was very noticeable in China, this new American trading partner. While trade and missionaries were allowed, the emperor was wary of the so-called barbarians, seeking special relationships. Here's how a sailor that wrote the Hailu, or Maritime Notes, in 1820, a sailor named Si Ching Kao, described America. The so-called Khan is an isolated island in the middle of the ocean. It could be reached sailing west ten days from England. Formerly part of England, it was now an independent country, although the two countries remain alike. That was 1820. It was not until John Tyler is president, the 1840s, that we etched the first official agreement with the Chang Dynasty. And pressure to do this really is, uh, the Americans are kind of coming secondary 
And the pressure is coming from Britain and France pressuring the emperor and opening up them to trade to other nations. You don't think about China being on Abraham Lincoln's mind. I mean, why would it be? He's got the country coming apart at the seams. He's got an insurrection in a third of the country. He's got to mobilize forces. At certain points, Washington, D.C., the very house that he's sitting in, is under threat of attack. You don't think of China as something that uh, he'd be aware of. And certainly it's not the largest focus of foreign policy for him. But he's thinking about it more than we might think today. Lincoln writes to Seward in 1861 before he takes office while all the ambassadors are being chosen with a list of countries that we are missing ambassadors for. And China is one of them. What say you, he says to Seward. In 1862, in his State of the Union Address, written to Congress, he describes relations with China as favorable. And indeed, in 1864, he mentions it again. Relations with China are favorable, especially compared to Japan, where there's some trouble accepting foreign trade. And here we have to mention an interesting and important person, Anson Burlingame, a 19th century diplomat. He's a well-known abolitionist. In fact, if we weren't talking about China at all, we could probably still tell a story about Anson Burlingame, and indeed we had podcast in the past about dueling, where we talked about him because he's going to play a role in international relations now. But before that, Burlingame played a domestic role. After South Carolina Congressman Preston Brooks so infamously beats Charles Sumner in the middle of the Senate floor with his cane, beats him, and he's not expelled from Congress because there's too much support from Southerners, and he doesn't apologize for his action, Anson Burlingame takes to the floor of the House and makes a speech calling Brooks out, calling him the vilest sort of coward for beating a man who couldn't defend himself while he's at his desk laying down on the floor. Brooks hears it. He challenges Anson Burlingame to a duel. Well, Brooks would soon find out that he picked the wrong guy. Burlingame says, absolutely, let's do it. In fact, and when you're challenged to a duel, you get to decide on certain terms. Let's do it in Canada, where it's not illegal and we won't get into trouble. And let's use rifles. Well, it turns out Burlingame is an excellent shot with the rifle. And he actually goes and practices before this duel. And word get back to Brooks, you know, oh, you're in trouble. This guy's an excellent shot. Are you crazy? He hears about it and he begs out of the duel. This is kind of relished by the Northern congressman who had felt Brooks' attack, of course, was uncalled for and tried unsuccessfully to get him expelled from the House. Now, Burlingame had challenged him to a duel, and he backed out. It certainly reduced some of the bragging rights that Brooks had for having taken on Sumner. So he's kind of famous now, Burlingame, in the, among Republican circles. He had been a Whig before that, American Party candidate and a free soil candidate before that. But in 1860, and this is not common in Massachusetts where Lincoln is cleaning up at the top of the ticket, he actually loses his congressional seat to a supporter of the Constitutional Union Party, a group that wants the North and South to patch things up. He's still famous in ranks. Lincoln knows of him, decides that he'd make a great ambassador to Austria. However, Burlingame had supported the rights of Hungarian Who's Hungarians who are seeking independence in the House and the Kingdom of Austria objects. He's removed. Lincoln then appoints Burlingame Minister of China. He is the first American minister to China, and he establishes the first legation there in 1862. He goes on to pull off one of the greatest diplomatic feats of all time. With Britain and France having seized territory in various ports and taken certain liberties of the government of China through hostile wars and threats, most notably the Opium Wars, forced open China, Burlingame quickly becomes kind of an honest broker of all the country's legations. He courts the reform movement in the palace, who are a group of people who want to do business with the West, but also don't want the West to come in trampling over China's territory. He courts this movement to develop better international relations. But he's insistent 
on just and fair treatment of the territory of China and the emperor's control. The British and French, there's something that they want is more kind of autonomous port cities. And of course, there are some of those that will go on in China. They want more of them. Burlingame dismisses this. Everything has to be worked through the emperor of China. You can't establish a French China. You can't establish a British China. Burlingame is so well received at this point that when he suggests to the emperor eventually that the Chinese should not just be having diplomats coming in, you need to send a team of Chinese diplomats out to the West to talk to them. The emperor says, that's a fine idea. You'll be my diplomat and I'll send two Chinese diplomats with you and you'll go and tour Western capitals on behalf of the emperor of China. So an American is now selected right off the bat, the first American to be the minister of China selected to be the emperor's representative. That's how much they trust Burlingame. Now, sadly, Lincoln dies in between the start of Burlingame's mission and the end. But during that time, he had given Burlingame absolute power to come up with an agreement between the United States and China. He dies before we're able to see it. The Chinese Empire sends a very sympathetic note on Lincoln's death, by the way. But his administration's more generous policy continues. And Burlingame and William Seward will, during the Johnson administration, work out a treaty, which has many interesting provisions. Most importantly, it's going to require that the territorial integrity of China be maintained. It also guarantees back and forth immigration based on a now very controversial principle that every man has the inherent right to change his home and alliance. It maintains most favored nation trading status, and it says that Chinese subjects visiting the U.S. enjoy all the immunities as citizens of the U.S. would, and vice versa. The U.S. also disavows any claim to interfere with the internal affairs of government. And not just that they're going to try to take over the government or something like that, but even things as simple as canals and roads. The Chinese need to be in charge of that. If the Americans are going to build a railroad in China, it's because the Chinese government contracts them to do so, and no other reason. This is a very generous, uh, from the Chinese emperor's point of view, treaty, and it's not the type of treatment that Western powers are granting China in other cases. It's a great example for the Chinese to use to other Western nations. See, this is the way the United States is treating us, and this would be the form that we'd like. Burlingame, though, dies in 1870. He's so honored in China. In 1901, McKinley's administration, Wu Ting-Fan, the Chinese minister to the United States, says this. Nothing shows more conclusively the greatness of Lincoln than his selection of men. The appointment of Anson Burlingame was a signal of this. The signing of the treaty was the first attempt on the part of a Western power to apply the principles of reciprocity in deals with the government and people of China. Though the treaty was enacted three years after Lincoln's death, it is in perfect accord with his enlightened and humane policies. Not only that, they're so happy with Anson Burlingame that the Emperor of China awards him a pension of $10,000 for the rest of his life. He won't live long, dies in 1870 while he's on a diplomatic trip to Russia. Now, unfortunately, this positive relationship would not continue much longer. We talked about how in 1820, there's a Maritime Notes book that's saying that, you know, America's this land that we don't know much about. You have to go to England first to get to it. Well, just 30 years later, when gold is discovered in California, and a little bit before that even, you start seeing Chinese immigration to the United States, particularly the western part of the United States. By 1870, when Burlingame dies, there are 100,000 Chinese Americans in the West. They're helping to dig for gold. They're helping to build the railroad. But after an economic panic in 1873, there's a banking crisis. There's some fraud going on in Wall Street. There's a lot of the railroads have been built. Some would say overbuilt. Shares of railroads drop. There's a panic. There's pressure to ban Chinese immigration. And there's violence against Chinese workers in their camps, Chinatown. In San Francisco, California, large groups of unemployed workers begin meeting. And this is concerning the government in California. And San Francisco at the time is the large city in the state of California. 
they're meeting in the Sandlot. It's an unused area next to City Hall. And the so-called Sandlotters see the Chinese as a scapegoat to use the economic depression. They push the Chinese to go. They attack the Chinese. They call the Chinese area town as an area where disease is spreading from. They talk about how they're smoking opium, how they gambled, how they would not become Christians. Most notably, the Sandlotters are worried about future immigration. See, China they had then, what were the time we're talking about? Say 1877. China has a population of the United States now, some 300 million. That's what they had then. There were some fears that with economic conditions in China, parts of China, that immigrants are going to come to the West and it's this fertile, empty land. And instead of kind of the manifest destiny dream of the Western settlement coming from the Eastern United States, it's going to come West from the Pacific. California, San Francisco, they they passed legislation both banning Chinese immigration and discriminating against Chinese doing certain business and being as citizens, testifying in court, owning property, and the like. The Supreme Court rejects California's ban on immigration. State can't do it. It's, that's, immigration is the policy of the federal government. Fine. Congress then passes in 1878 the first Chinese Exclusion Act. Now, Rutherford B. Hayes is president, and he vetoes it. Yet, we shouldn't see Rutherford B. Hayes as a friend uh, to immigration necessarily, particularly Chinese immigration. He's mostly vetoing it because it's contrary to the treaty that Burlingame and Seward signed in 1868. Hayes actually writes in his diary, it's an invasion. And indeed, Hayes sends new representatives to China, gets the empire to agree that they can amend the Burlingame Treaty to allow restrictions on immigration, but not absolute prohibition of Chinese coming to America. Which sounds good, but that is exactly what's about to happen. 1882, Hayes no longer president, now it's Chester Arthur. Congress does that. It passes a absolute ban on Chinese immigration for 20 years. Now, Chester Arthur also vetoes the Chinese Exclusion Act, but he hints that it's that 20 years that he thinks is just too contrary to the treaty. Congress votes for a second Chinese Exclusion Act, reduces the time to 10 years. President Arthur signs. For the first time, there's a ban on a specific group of people from a federal level, immigration into the United States, and it's 1882. Well after the Civil War, Chinese Exclusion Act, I think, usually seen in most uh, historical accounts as a blight on America. It will trap these 100,000 Chinese. I mean, some of them are going to leave, but many are going to be stuck uh, in the United States with no chance of reuniting with their families in China. There's, it's followed by laws on discrimination that will ensure that they're second-class citizens. Ten years or not, it's going to continue to be extended by Congress and by presidents, and the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 will not be repealed until 1943, when China is an ally with Franklin Roosevelt, the United States, during World War II. Hayes' comments about an invasion or some of the statements of the Sandlotters are right in line with a lot of the thinking. Here's how historian James Ford Rhodes, writing in the 1920s with his history of the United States, describes the actions of Hayes and Arthur in this regard. And this, by the way, is after he condemns the behavior of San Franciscans that are attacking Chinese shops or attacking labor camps, discriminating against Chinese, you know, holding people as different. But still, he he says this in his volume. The sentiment of the Pacific Coast and action of Congress showed political sagacity to shut out millions of Chinese desiring to escape poor economic conditions seemed cruelty. Nevertheless, it was far-seeing statesmanship. Hayes and Arthur guided the country in a dignified manner. During the congressional hearings in 1877, a congressional committee investigating Chinese immigration describes the Chinese in America as an indigestible mass in the community, distinct in language, pagan in religion, 
inferior in mental and moral qualities, who therefore required exclusion for the good of the public. Sixteen years from civil war, seven years from having passed a bill that at least allowed all men of all races to vote, and the United States has not in large measure given, uh, gotten beyond considering a group of human beings as inferior and just never able to assimilate into the United States. Um, it's, it's really interesting, by the way, sets up a little bit of a hypothetical, which is what if, right? We know American history as one where mostly it was the East moving into the West. And yes, there were certainly uh, Spanish, Mexicans, Russians, and British and others settling the West as well. But mostly it was Americans from the East, both North and South, settling the West. But what? If, just as we had towards the turn of the century, a large migration from Southern Europe throughout our American history from Ireland to the East Coast, what if we arrived at the turn of the century with a West already populated with millions of Chinese from the Pacific? We know, of course, that was the vision that the Sandlotters, the various presidents, have in their view as a horrible result. But with hindsight, uh, we, we, we know it's simply not true that a group can't assimilate into American life. And so I, I find it interesting to look at a little bit of the counterfactual. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. What if the population of the West is settled much faster than it was? The United States is even a larger nation, an even more vibrant economy. We're facing World War I and World War II which, um, with a much larger population. How does World War II go where, instead of having a sparsely populated West, by comparison to the East, we have a very populated West with a larger group of Chinese Americans than were allowed to be there being able to fight and serve in the armed forces and naval forces of the United States at this time. How would the country look when, even at the turn of the century, we have people living in it, significant pluralities of people living in in various states from all the continents of the world? In 1882, the decision was made to exclude ourselves, our country, from that future possibility. David Priest writes on Twitter, and you can find me on Twitter at myhist, at M-Y-H-I-S-T. Bruce, you've talked about Nixon going to China. What about relations between China and presidents before Nixon? Well, we can look at what came before Nixon, what led up to the fact that China became an isolationist country, by the treatment of the various Western powers up until that. And the United States certainly plays a role in it, even if some of the Western nations were worse. But you also see an attempt on the part of the United States, particularly Abraham Lincoln, to create a new kind of foreign policy. And it's also another interesting counterfactual to think about what would have happened had Lincoln lived in that second term with the Union issue now settled, with the United States Civil War ended, how Lincoln acts around the world in foreign policy, and what a precedent that might have set in motion, and how things might have been different. Now, I know you can ask a reasonable question, how much of this policy towards China that Burlingame did is really Lincoln? You know, uh, Well, it's hard to say. We do have a few references. We do have the granting of Burlingame leeway over making a treaty with China, which meant that Lincoln must have trusted him and knew what he was going to do. We also know that Lincoln and Seward, his Secretary of State, worked together quite well. 
Lincoln was always seeing Seward, always talking to Seward, either in his office, walking over to Seward's house, which was right across from the White House. This wasn't a person that he had a lot of conflicts with, at least outside of the first couple of months. This was a person he got along with very well. Porter from New Jersey, who had visited the White House a lot and had very good access there, said, uh, The impression following an hour with Seward and Lincoln was surprised that the two men, seemingly so unlike in habit, thoughts, and manner of speech, could act in such perfect accord. So I'm pretty certain Lincoln did his usual thing of while he granted and delegated to Seward wide authority, I think he was kept in the loop and aware of what was going on. And so we can say that something like the Burlingame Treaty was really a Lincoln's treaty. And certainly, as we noted, that diplomat in 1901 still thought of things that way. Lincoln's very respected in China. And you have an interesting situation that both Mao Zedong and Chiang Kai-shek actually quote Lincoln in different times, helped America's case in China, I think, over the years to have had a historic figure like Lincoln. So when you're talking about presidents in China, you know, we could say that the first one to create any kind of deal is, uh, is Tyler, but I don't really think the involvement personally is there. And we can say that the you know, first kind of establishing that there will be a formal relations. It happens under Buchanan, and it's effective under Lincoln. So Lincoln's really a, a big figure in the United States relations with China, and it's not something much talked about. And all through these years, sitting along with Lincoln, his secretary, John Hay, Lincoln had hired one of his son's friends, a Brown graduate, to work with him, become friends, confident, He's kind of amused by him in some ways. He calls him the backwoods Jupiter who was running the war. He's very impressed, though. But Lincoln also benefits from Hay and his social skills. And Hay runs things in the White House. He keeps things polite. He's the guy that, you know, says the polite no when Lincoln can't. He uses his social skills. He's going to various Washington dinners all the time, and he's kind of Lincoln's eyes and ears there. He reports everything back to the chief. They're having conversations all the time. I mean, Seward and Hay are probably two of the most common people that Lincoln is speaking to. And he soaks up quite a lot. By 1865, he's sent to Paris as a diplomat. It's in 1897, under McKinley's administration, that Hay, after having a career as a poet, author, and a businessman is ambassador to Great Britain. And in 1898, he becomes Secretary of State under McKinley, and he continues with Roosevelt till his death, 1905. Hay's an interesting figure. Things have gotten worse for China in the later 19th century. It's not running its affairs well. The Opium Wars had ensured that England and France would have their way. You have some other powers, Russia and Germany now, that are entering, and they want a piece of China, too. In 1899, the United States is a little more concerned about it from its own self-interest, of course. Uh, We had entered the world as a world power with the end of the Spanish-American War. We've annexed the Philippines, so we're right next to China, and for the first time, we really have territory in Asia. But it would be silly for the United States to send warships over to China and just start uh, seizing some kind of territory. So here's what Hay comes up with. He sends notes to all of the great powers that are involved in China. United Kingdom, France, Germany, Russia, and Japan. Calls for each of these powers to do away with any economic advantages to their own citizens that won't be granted to the others. And he suggested that All tariffs collected in China must go to the Chinese government. The message is clear. You're not going to create a British China, a German China. You're not going to create a Japanese China. Already got the British on board with this one. Already have the Japanese on board with this. One by one, each of the powers agrees. And with France, Britain, Japan, and the United States together, they pressure the Germans and Russians who are kind of reluctant to, to follow this open-door policy, as it's called. They pressure them to accept. Russia has a lot of exceptions. So the, the acceptance of what's called the, these notes, the open-door notes, that China should be an open-door to trade, but no country should be carving up territory, is, you know, is only begrudgingly accepted. It's not a formal treaty. It survives, though. 
And it it is a imperialist policy. I mean, one of the things that's missing in these open door notes is Hay is not sending a note to the government of China. All right. Uh, some of the terms are favorable to China, right? We're going to maintain their integrity and, and the control of the emperor, but uh, it's still imperialist, it's globalist, it's enhancing trade. One could argue that Hay had no chance of acquiring territory in China anyway, so the easiest thing for the U.S. to do is like, wait, let's just all be fair here. Yet, and there's a rising resentment of all this uh, foreign involvement in China. I mean, you have the Boxer Rebellion in 1900, and they have the, the cooperation of the Empress. They have Imperial Army troops fighting with them. They seize the capital. And 2,500 American Marines, uh, along with Japanese forces, German forces, UK, France, they're going to march from South China through the territory of China. So you have, at the turn of the century, American troops you know, are now fighting around the world, including marching into the middle of China, some small battles, and they rescue the legation at Beijing, which had been established in 1862 and now was surrounded by anti-imperialist boxers. But after this is over, Hay sends another note to all the nations reminding them about the open-door policy. Don't use the Boxer Rebellion as an excuse to carve up China now. And so this policy, while imperialistic, does prevent the Chinese from losing much of their territory. I mean, they do lose Mongolia, Manchuria at different times, so it's not a perfect system. Um, But the large Chinese mainland is preserved in 1899 so that it can be the nation that we see of China in 2015. You didn't have sections of it. It didn't get split into four parts. That would probably be impossible to unite today. So it's an interesting, you can go back and forth with Open Door and what it says. Um, The Chinese are going to pay the United States for damages incurred during the Boxer Rebellion, but a significant amount of that money is actually going to be returned to China in 1907, a decision of Theodore Roosevelt. I think those are the two areas to focus on, the Burlingame Treaty and the resulting immigration battle and the Open Door Notes. Fast forward quickly through the rest of it to get you to Nixon, and you essentially have that Woodrow Wilson's going to acknowledge the Republic of China when it's founded in 1915. He's going to encourage China to enter World War I on the side of the Allies. They'll enter it late. He's going to disappoint them at the peace table in Versailles when the colonies that Germany and the lands that Germany had taken are not given back to the Chinese but handed to the Japanese. Uh, That's going to be a big disappointment. And all through this period, there are U.S. naval ships. Sometimes it's the United States contracting with Chinese ships, but increasingly in the teens and 20s, it's U.S. naval ships that are going to be stationed at Shanghai and are going to patrol the Yangtze River to make sure that trade stays open. Uh, They're going to be attacked at different times. There's a nationalist movement, the Northern Expedition, that is uh, forming, and they would like to preserve China for Chinese. One just has to think about how we would feel in the United States to have foreign warships patrolling the Mississippi. By 1928, the U.S. government is going to recognize the government of Chiang Kai-shek and his nationalist government. China will be an ally in World War II. Communist Chinese take over in 1950. Then we're shut out until Nixon in 72. That's a quick look at some of the presidents in China. I think that in looking at that story, it tells us a lot about our foreign policy, what we do, and how America acts. I mean, again, you know, you have that that contradiction in the open door classic American debate. Are we a good nation abroad or not in in the actions that we take? I also think it says a lot about immigration. Uh, Today's immigration debates can be informed by this, that really the first federal ban on immigration occurs in 1882. 100 years from the first U.S. ship appearing at Canton, a man named Wong Kim Ark, born in San Francisco, at the time of the Burlingame Treaty and before the Sandlot Movement 
really gets started just as it's getting started. He lives in California, grows up, he's a laborer. His parents own a store in Chinatown. They never obtain any formal citizenship, but they live in the United States and carry on business there. They have a domicile. Now, his parents decide to move back there. Uh, They feel they're being discriminated against. There's so many restrictions on their business now. Their lives could be in danger. They decide to move back. Wang King Ark stays for a few years and then decides that there's no opportunities for him to work in China, so he wants to come back to the United States. And he does find work as a cook. So he's a cook in the Sierra Mountains. He's not the only one there. He has no problem going back the first time, but then he goes to visit the parents, comes back. He's now a 21-year-old. You don't have to have immigration at this point, at least not in San Francisco. But there is a customs agent. And he's an opponent of Chinese immigration. And he wants to make a point. Wang Kimark is denied entry into the United States. He goes to, and there's the society, the Chinese Benevolent Society in San Francisco, and they retain a lawyer, and the first court rules for Wang Kim Ark, and it goes all the way to the Supreme Court as to whether he can stay. Then you have the case of U.S. versus Wang Kim Ark. The Supreme Court finds that the birthplace of the child is the determinant of citizenship. It is a long decision. It's written by Justice Horace Gray. It's supported in a 7-2 decision of the court. It's currently the standard that's used. Joe Dweck asks me in the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics Facebook site. There's a lot of talk now about the 14th and birthright citizenship. Have you done a podcast on this? And we did the podcast recently on the the slaughter cannot be ignored, which was actually a repeat of a cast that I had done back in 2013, all about the origins of the 14th and the decision in the slaughterhouse cases, which did invalidate some of the strength of the 14th Amendment and what it possibly could have done for a host of things, both left and right in terms of the political spectrum. So we talked about all that. So you do have a number of politicians who are taking a look at the 14th Amendment now, particularly the citizenship laws, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States, trying to take a second look at it, you know, in in, in terms of the issue of the so-called anchor babies where uh, people come to the United States to have a child that then is an automatic citizen of the United States. And Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You have the Republican candidates during the recent GOP debate, I think particularly Donald Trump, obviously, and Rand Paul and a few others that are thinking that it's badly interpreted by the courts and conservative commentary generally that there's no law that would provide for birthright citizenship, which is kind of ignoring that it's it's a legal interpretation and not a direct law that was ever passed. Uh, so I think that Wong Kim Ark is, there's a spotlight on it uh, these days. It's a worthwhile look. The key thing to understand is that Wong Kim Ark and that decision, I think what some of the opponents would miss in, in terms of the Wong Kim Ark decision 
is that that case is not reliant on the 14th alone. So the very nature of examining the 14th for clues and it alone for clues as to what to do with in terms of children, of illegal immigrants, or any kind of birthright citizenship today is insufficient because the decision in Wong Kim Ark is reliant on not just the 14th, although it talks about it, but on on common law and previous Supreme Court decisions. The United States has no common law. There was no common law just created for America, but there was a law that existed when the United States was created, and it's the inherited common law of England. And persons who were English, persons who lived in Britain were considered British subjects. And the British Empire did not go through looking at nationality and trying to trace the blood of a person to make the determination as to whether he was one of the king's subjects or not. The same law, Horace Gray, Justice argued, was understood by the early Americans. One of the key facts of the decision is that citizenship comes with the soil of birth. He relies on previous Supreme Court decisions to make this determination. For example, in the case of Minor versus Happersett, Chief Justice Waite says, Common law does not define a natural-born citizen. Resort must be elsewhere to ascertain that. Gray doesn't rely on the 14th in his decision, but he uses it in reading that the object of the 14th and that citizenship clause, particularly the phrase that many opponents currently are are kind of grabbing onto the subject to the jurisdiction thereof, his reading of the object of the 14th in qualifying all persons born in the United States by the addition of and subject to the jurisdiction thereof would be to exclude by fewest and fittest words two excluded classes of people. And those he lists as Children of diplomatic representatives. This was a concern when the 14th was written. You didn't want to automatically say that the, the, the minister from Great Britain doing the, the king's business, if they have a child in America, that that would be an American child. Or those born of alien enemies during hostile occupation of the United States, should that have ever happened. He refers to a previous court case in 1812 where Chief Justice Marshall wrote that ministers are not subject to the jurisdiction of U.S. law, but aliens or visiting foreigners are. He further says, The jurisdiction of the nation within its own territory is necessarily exclusive and absolute. Any restriction on it would imply a demutation of its sovereignty to the extent of the restriction. Now, this is an interesting phrase in the Wong Kim Ark decision uh, that probably doesn't get talked a lot, a lot. But in other words, you know, some opponents will, will probably argue now that uh, the United States is so strong that it must have direct control over its borders. There's, it's kind of turning that argument on its head away to say, well, also, the United States jurisdiction is so strong that someone entering the United States might be a citizen of another country. But they're subject to the jurisdiction of the United States. We're not going to go and pull out a, a book of the, the Chinese imperial law to determine how we're going to treat a person when they're in California. We're going to use the laws of the United States. He applies that here to interpret the phrase under the jurisdiction thereof. The one of the things that I think opponents need to think about and this is what the court faced in 1899, and it's exactly the same today, is the other way of doing it is we're starting to get back into the business of looking at nationality and looking at blood and trying to determine what a child who's born in the United States is. And it's going to open up things like where, where your father was born, what race, what nationality, going to go down a whole series of legal questions, which we long ago abandoned as we became more progressive on race and our understanding of what an American is. You also have to remember what the justices were facing, and that was a 21-year-old person, merely of Chinese nationality, 
of Chinese blood, let's say, not so obviously an American who had spent his time here, who wanted to come back here. One of the things they say continuously in the decision is that he never renounced his citizenship of the United States in any way. He'd barely ever lived in China. In just a few years of his entire life, he's a 21-year-old. He's found work here. He wants to work here. He wants to be part of the economy. So that was kind of the decision that they were facing. And a lot of that decision is rooted in how long he lived here, his status as an American, and how long his parents lived here and that they were working and they had a domicile. It does throw into question some of the things you hear about where there might be like a hotel in Los Angeles and mother will have a baby there and then fly out and what how we adjudicate that down the line there there's some openings I think in that case there is a quick mention that they say that they're uh that the justices say in Wang King Ark that they're not sure that anything that he did during his minority let's say like so even if even if uh, Ark had written a note when he was 14 and said, uh, well, I'm a citizen of China or, or anything else he did, they're not sure anything he did could have changed his citizenship. That's what the, the justices say. But they sort of punt the ball down the road because they also say, well, that's not a factor in this case because it doesn't apply. That both he and his parents had a relationship with the United States, and that's why they were ruling in favor of his case as a citizen. So, got a little opening there. Um, I don't think much, and I don't think courts since then have considered that. Now, obviously, this is a controversial issue. I would just take point with one thing that I heard frequently at the, particularly in the GOP debate, that the current standard that courts use is Wong Kim Ark. It's been in jurisprudence for 150 years. So when I hear candidates, you know, say that, well, I've got a few legal scholars that disagree with this. It's like, well, that's great. In fact, there are, of course, there's legal scholars that disagree with a variety of decisions of the Supreme Court of the United States. Almost every court decision was opposed, and there were probably amicus briefs uh, filed by the plaintiffs or defendants who lost. And even this decision, Wong Kim Ark, did have two dissenting justices. One of them, surprisingly, John Harlan, great dissenter in the Plessy v. Ferguson case, but here would also dissent in this case. There were two dissenters in the case. Now, certainly a candidate in 2015 is free to rely on the advice of legal scholars or to say, go along with a dissent, a Supreme Court decision. But I guess it's just up to voters to judge, you know, candidates, what they're actually going to do. And if you say that what you're going to do is based on overturning a Supreme Court case, well, you better get ready for a big, long case to overturn significant legal precedent. It doesn't sound like something that would be proper to just argue as one of my campaign platforms. Here's what I'll do when I get elected. It really should be, here's what I'll do when I get elected. And then several years down the line, maybe I'm not president anymore, a Supreme Court precedent is overturned. There's also a lot of commentary about the comments of Senator Howard Jacob. He's a senator from Michigan, and he's a Republican, and he authored the Senate version of the 14th Amendment, and there was a little debate. He makes a phrase that he didn't think the law applied to foreigners, aliens, and children of diplomats. Now, the trouble with that is that legislative intent is always hard to to gauge. There was, a, there was a little more interplay in that 1866 Senate debate. And there was a senator from California that insisted that he was voting for a law that would allow children to, of uh, Chinese immigrants to become United States citizens by birthright. There's no doubt that for a candidate now to say that they're going to operate in a way that's contrary to the court decisions, it would you could use that for almost any issue. So if we looked at the Heller decision and some city wanted to say, uh, a person running for mayor wanted to say, well, if I'm elected, I don't care about the Supreme Court decision. I'm going to ban handguns in the city anyway. That would be a, a huge protest. And there'd also be some criticism of the person as being kind of a joker, like, look, you're just arguing something that you know is never going to get done. But in this debate, that hasn't shown up as much, I think, because there's so much unpopularity uh, attached to that Wong King arc decision. But uh, it is there, and it is law of the land. 
at the time of the 14th, the concept of illegal immigration itself would be hard to ascertain. There weren't immigration offices and ports in most places. Uh, it would be immigration, federal immigration law did not exist until the Chinese Exclusion Act. So the line that we understand today as to a person who entered the country illegally and a person who came here through normal immigration would not be something understood by anyone who authored the 14th Amendment at the time. There was a little contradictory debate before the 14th Amendment passed about how it would apply to children of immigrants, and that was about it. One of the uh, the, the other common uh, response from opponents of birthright citizenship is that the 14th was merely about emancipation of blacks and discrimination against blacks in various states. It's made clear by the slaughterhouse cases, and it's made clear by the authors of the amendment that they're not just talking about blacks when they pass the 14th Amendment, and that's why that language is not in there. There's no reference to race in there. So it's all an interesting debate. We'll keep watching what happens. That's my take on it. I want to thank you for listening. If you like the program, go to www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics. Some more episodes there. Also, you can donate to the program. We ask for a donation of $25 to receive the archive of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. You'll get past episodes going back to 2006. Quite a lot of topics discussed. And if you like the program, please let somebody know about it. That always helps to find new listeners for the program. Thanks for listening. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.